So there's some more questions. One is why is um, mindfulness first and then concentration? Each each uh, each of these kind of um, is a bigger one than the one before, right? Mm -hmm. So why is concentration seems less than mindfulness to me? So so anyway, that I'm curious why that is, and then. Um, and then think about mindfulness is something you are while concentration is something you do. I mean, would that be correct? Kind of goes with what Glenn was saying, I think, about concentration. It, it, it's an action. And what does a squirrel do? Concentration or mindfulness? Anyone has anyone been a squirrel? No, but I've noticed that if it's looking at a nut and trying to figure out how to get it, it's concentrating. But it it's mindful of its abilities. I mean, it's just a natural extension of knowing its capabilities and where it is and how it moves in that environment in its attempt to get to the nut with concentration. <laughs> and is concentration conscious? I want to say yes on that one. Yeah. And you think a, a squirrel is conscious? Of course. Huh. You're going to have to ask the squirrel that. <laughs> you think it's a silly question, Donna, or what? Yeah. I, I tend to um, believe all, you know, we are not the sole recipients of consciousness. <laughs> Let's read this. Oh, I got to share. Um, we're going to have to go through the whole eighth, eighth and the concluding paragraph tonight so that we can start. Okay, so we're, we'll move a little faster, maybe. Maybe rather than time, we'll kind of short circuit that. We'll see. Okay, so let's read in this order. Peg is now here. Sorry, we had to have a, sh a brief pit stop at an untimely time. That's what I imagined. Yes. And I've been asking questions. We've been talking about the difference between concentration and mindfulness. Does a squirrel do concentration or mindfulness when it's looking at a nut? Why is concentration the eighth one and not the seventh one? Because it seems like a, you know, like a smaller thing than mindfulness. From, from the Zen perspective. Looks like we'll find out. Yes, okay. So week one. All right, uh, reflections and practices, right mindfulness. We'll go medical, okay, thank you. Uh, what is your relationship to mindfulness of the body? Is it difficult for you to be aware of your body? How often do you practice mindfulness of your body? How is attention to your body beneficial? What are some of the lessons you learn through careful attention to your physical experience? In what areas of your life would it be useful for you to have more mindfulness of your body? I think each person could read a week. Oh, okay. I'll go on. The traditional practice of mindfulness of 
of the body begins by focusing on breathing and intentionally relaxing the body as you do so. Spend a period of time each day outside of meditation, breathing mindfully and relaxing your body. Then engage in an ordinary daily activity while staying centered in awareness of your body, practicing mindfulness of your physical experience. What benefits come from doing this? So we do. I, I said was that maybe um, concentration is something you do and, and mindfulness is something you are. But I think it's, it's easy, as we were talking about a week or two ago, to confuse these two. And to, to think, I mean, is he talking really, do we, or when we do a body scan, are we necessarily doing mindfulness or are we doing concentration? It depends. Both are possible. Mm -hmm. And it's one, one like, better than the other we won't know until we get to concentration will we no okay we do <laughs> we do not a spoiler mindfulness of feeling tones everything we experience falls into one of three flavors something can be pleasant unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant as you live your life are you more affected by one of these three or do you tend to be influenced by all three equally which of the three has the most influences on your behavior? Which tends to agitate you the most? What are some of the beliefs you have about pleasure and pain? What wisdom do you have about relating to what is pleasant or unpleasant? For traditional practice of mindfulness, of feeling tones differentiates feelings that are of the flesh and those that are not, are not of the flesh. This may be understood as feelings that arise through our ordinary senses and those which occur independent, page, of our senses and perceptions of the external world. Some people refer to the latter kind of feeling as spiritual. And the way, another way of thinking about this is that the second category refers to feelings associated with the quality of our innermost, of our inner life or inner emotional state. During this week, spend time nourishing your inner life. Rather than doing activities that bring you pleasure, do things that bring satisfaction, meaning, or happiness to your heart. As you do so, be mindful of any pleasure or pleasantness that arises in your heart or inner life. Okay, so week three, maybe it's me. Um, yes. Mindfulness of mental states. Mental states are general moods of our minds. When we repeatedly think or intend the same thing, it can condition the general disposition or quality of the mind. Sometimes this is obvious when we see people who are visibly displaying a mood. With mindfulness, we can become skilled at recognizing the mental state of our own mind. While changeable, mental states are not as fleeting as particular thoughts. Mental states tend to persist for a while. What are the three most common mental states you experience? <coughs> What causes these states to arise? What causes them to persist? What causes them to pass away? What beliefs or stories do you tell yourself about your mental states? What influence do these states have on you and your behavior? What has been your experience of practicing mindfulness of your mental states? 
A simple way of practicing mindfulness of mental states is to notice where your state of mind fits on a spectrum from expanded, light, and open to contracted, heavy, and closed. As you go through the day, take time to clearly be clearly aware of where you are on the spectrum. Notice how and when you shift along the spectrum. Also take time to notice what your degree of expansiveness or contractiveness feels like. What happens to you as you recognize and feel this aspect of your mental state? <coughs> Week four, my phone is Nancy. Nancy? Yes. How's your, how was your kitten? Oh, uh, yeah, he's doing quite okay. He's sleeping on the bed right now. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to let him uh, get to, um, on the bed, but I <laughs> <laughs> No, that's not going to work. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks for asking, though. Nancy has a brand new kitten. Nice. Yeah, I will. Oh, he's good. Come here. Come here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, I'm going to... Um, um, have a vaccine shot for him on Thursday. <laughs> What's your name? What's his name? Oh, I still debating on the name. <laughs> um, do you have any suggestion for uh, a name? I want to name something. Yeah, well, we like can, we can have uh, a name the cat contest. <laughs> we had yeah, name we the dog. That. Yeah. <laughs> Is he all white like that with just a marking on his face? Uh, yeah, he has, uh, okay, let me see. Yeah, yeah, he has some, uh, like black right here. Uh huh. Yeah, and some like black on the oh. body. Oh. Yeah, like mixed color. Oh, <laughs> yeah. he's so cute. <laughs> For some reason, he doesn't like me to hold him this way. Like, he doesn't on, uh, like him, uh, like to sit on my lap. He just want to like bite me, like keep biting my hands and my legs. It's a <laughs> killing. Yeah. yeah. And he said, seems like that is what he likes to play. So like, doo, 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 doo. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that I already cut his nails, so not much scratches on my hands and legs. <laughs> Not as much. <laughs> Are you going to read, Nancy? Yes, I'm going to read now. Uh, mindfulness of mental pro uh, processes is a um, wisdom practice because it involves understanding of understanding the attitudes, beliefs, and mental behaviors that either bring inner freedom or lead us to be to become caught up in attachment. What are some of the reasons you get attached or obsessed? What are some of the attachments that you understand so well that letting go of them is relatively easy? What are some of the psychological benefits you have seen from letting go? What are some of your stronger attachments, the ones you can only get let go with considerable effort? What are some of the things you cling to 
that you can't imagine being able to let go of. For this seven-day period, spend one day focused on each of the seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness investigation, effort, joy, equality, concentration, and equanimity. Each day, try to cultivate the factor of the day to help you memory, to help you remember. Write the factor down on a piece of paper and display in display it in a prominent place. Attempt small but frequent steps to make the factor more present, even at very mild levels. Are some factors easier for you to evoke than others? How does the increased presence of uh, the factors affect you each day? What benefits come from working with the factors? Hmm. Okay, before we go on, does anyone want to say anything about mindfulness? I like the way he has um, laid it out in these practices. So it gets um, increasingly more um, uh, internalized and increasingly um, more uh, subtle, I think. And I like it that he ends with these factors of awakening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that idea of putting out the factor for the day. Although tranquility for me fell on Friday and it was not a very tranquil day. <laughs> it was a very hard day. Oh. Yeah. So that means you have to really be attentive. I saw how much fear I hold, which was, I don't know how I carry that much fear. And I imagined as I was looking at the level of fear that I hold, I think, how can I carry this all the time? Do I carry this all the time? Is today particularly um, scary for me? And the answer to that was yes, but then there was a second question. Well, then what is your level of fear when it's not a particularly scary day? And I don't know that there's a significant difference, which was very telling about yeah. um, how much fear I carry a lot of the time. Yeah. It's like a back and it's filled with all this stuff. We don't like to open it, but then, you know, every once in a while we do, and it's a Pandora's box, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And just when I think things can't get scarier, they, they just do. <laughs> they just do. They won't listen to me. <laughs> so. This is our practice, right? Is to be it able is. to record the parts that are frightened. Right. And, um, and to be present with them, not trying to deny what they're afraid of, but just saying, here, I'm here right with you. Yeah. That, that huge Buddha heart and mind is always with you. So that's, those are very young parts that are terrified in that way. Not that there isn't plenty to be worried about in the world, obviously. But it triggers those parts, those young parts, um, that carry all the terror. Yeah. That's why I wrote about that a while back. Supposedly, it's, it's, 
even younger than we are. I mean, it's it it's goes back to prehistoric times to that. I mean, that's what Buddha's brain is about. It's how it protects us. Yeah. Yeah. From early, early man. Early yeah. But I know, I know when they're young parts because they're they're pretty irrational. I mean, there is there there's rational fear, and yeah. then there's the big boogeyman fear that I can I, I can distinguish between the two most of the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's important to be aware of that, you know, because fear is valuable when there when there is a, a cause for fear. Station alert has arrived. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of. <laughs> okay. Are we ready to concentrate now? Yes. Concentration. Eighth factor. Yes. Oh, I, I get, am I next? I'm after Nancy. Yeah. Yes. All right. Um, chapter 11, page 80, eighth factor, right concentration. When the Buddha knew that the householder's mind was ready, soft, free from hindrance, joyful and bright, he expounded the teachings special to the Buddhas, middle length, length discourse 56.18. The final factor of the Eightfold Path is right concentration. The preceding six factors all provide important support for our ability to develop a stable, focused, bright and concentrated mind. With the development of right concentration, the Eightfold Path can then culminate in insight and liberation. Right concentration prepares the mind for deep understanding and profound letting go. This occurs when the mind is ready, soft, free from hindrances, joyful and bright as in the description above of the householder's mind, which the Buddha recognized as ready for the most significant teachings. Recognizing the expansive and unhindered quality of this mind is the task of the third foundation of mindfulness. Using this concentrated mind for wisdom is the task of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. When we know how a concentrated mind is part of the eightfold path, oops, wait, that's all right. We've been two because they're so short. Oh, okay. When we know how a concentrated mind is part of the Eightfold Path, we can use the possibility of the peaceful, expansive mind as a guidepost along the path. Rather than straining with striving and expectations, we cultivate receptive readiness. We let go deeply so <coughs> the mind can be free of tension. By understanding the value of a soft mind, we're less likely to get tense as we practice. When we remember the need to become free of the hindrances, we're less easily taken in by their authority. And when we understand the role of joy and mental brightness on the path, we will be quicker to recognize and support these states. That phrase, the soft mind, really clarifies for me the concentration that he's talking about. Yeah, it's not straining, it's not, yeah. Yeah, it's this soft, receptive mind. Um, I've seen this in a, in a dog I had who could sit for hours by a woodpile and wait for um, rabbits to come out. Yeah. Um, and it looked so perfectly relaxed. Right. But 
just a soft, open mind. Okay. Uh, Donna again. As befitting the metaphor of a journey along a path, the practice of right concentration itself involves a passage toward increasingly tranquil states of mind. In the same way that right mindfulness is a journey of deepening self-knowledge, right concentration moves us inward toward experiencing progressively deeper wellsprings of stillness and clarity. You want to read another one, Donna? Okay. Um, with right concentration, the mind becomes unified as it shifts from being scattered, disorganized, and agitated to become calm and centered. When agitated, the mind easily jumps between bodily sensations, emotions, moods, thoughts, daydreams, desires, external events, and our reactions to what we are experiencing. When concentrated, the mind settles down and stays centered and undistracted. As we relax into a focused attention, there is a growing experience of unification, of feeling whole with all our faculties working in harmony. The unification of mind that comes with concentration is reflected in the way the different factors that come into play with concentration all work together to support greater concentration. Relaxation and wholeness generate a feedback loop. Concentration and unification relax the body, and the relaxed body supports further concentration. When concentration calms and brightens the mind, the calm and brightness sharpens concentration further. When concentration evokes joy or rapture, the joy provides incentive for deepen the concentration and stillness. Page. Cultivating concentration takes patience and consistent practice. For most people, concentration develops slowly, perhaps even imperceptibly with daily meditation practice. It can be useful to assume that only 25% of developing concentration is the intentional effort to stay present and focused. Another 25% of the practice is an attitude of equanimity and receptivity. And a full 50% of concentration practice consists of letting go and relaxing. Oops, I'm sorry. Um, so this is one of the confusions I have is, is, so how do you do this if you can't do it by trying? You do it by relaxing. Yeah. Which is easier said than done. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we practice. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's, uh. Glenn, <coughs> I guess I'm next. All meditation practices develop concentration. Some practices have this as their primary purpose, while in other practices, concentration is a byproduct. I, what I'm thinking about is, is Philip Whalen supposedly could, would count his breaths to 10 and he could do it for the whole period of meditation. And then there's that story we heard about um, Blanche Hartman going to Suzuki Roshi and saying, I'm so proud that I, right. I you know, and then being scolded for it. Um, but it seems you could do that and, and be relaxing in the state of relaxing that it, it, 
Well, that's, they weren't scolded for not relaxing. They was, were scolded for, by the egoic assumption that they were doing something. Yeah, well, I don't know that Phil Whalen was ever scolded, but, but Blanche Harpin. Yeah. I mean, Phil Whalen was very, I, this is just what he did and he was able to do it. Yeah. Okay. All meditation practices develop concentration. Some practices have this as their primary purpose, while in other practices, concentration is a byproduct. One of the most common ways of developing concentration in meditation is to focus on breathing. Another approach is loving kindness practice, where one focuses on one of the three following aspects of the practice, the intentions of loving kindness toward ourselves and others, the phrases <coughs> repeated as part of the practice, and the feelings that arise while doing it. Still another way of developing concentrated, settled, dis undistracted mind can be focusing on the on the changing nature of present motion, moment experience without emphasizing any particular object. Concentration in my in meditation is not a laser-like focus Origin, uh, originating in the control tower in the mind. Rather, we cultivate by physically and mentally settling our attention on the object of focus with real intimacy. It requires letting go of distraction thoughts instead of forcibly pushing them away. To do this, it helps to calm whatever mental energy is in, involved in any thinking. Establishing a firm but soft intentness to stay focused is also helpful. Balancing this intentness with letting go into the object of concentration is useful. You want to read another one? Oh, okay. It's best not to concentrate with brute mental force. Instead, we can use our discernment to discover how to stay focused in a committed, relaxed way. We can develop wisdom about the hindrances to concentration and other forces that we struggle. Instead of resorting to unhelpful tactics like aversion or resistance in the face of distractions, we can learn more effective strategies for overcoming them, leading to more tranquility and unification. It is also useful to explore how to enjoy the practice. Not only can concentration practice bring joy, it can also bring tranquility and peace, sometimes to a greater de degree than is usually available in daily life. Even small amounts of meditative joy and peace are useful for encouraging greater concentration. Do you want me to go on? Or you want to do Can, this next paragraph? We've been doing two. All right. A concentrated mind is a still mind, bright with awareness. As wonderful as this is, it is not an end in itself. Rather, for those walking the Eightfold Path, such a mind provides the clarity for deep insight and wisdom. In particular, deep concentration leads to penetrating insight into suffering and freedom from suffering. This, in turn, leads to a direct understanding of how true and useful 
the Four Noble Truths are. And I have a question, mm -hmm. um, Peg or Kim or anyone. So these days, I actually find a concentration practice much easier than the, just to sit, be wide open and spacious to whatever comes. And, and also joyful and calming because my concentration practice is usually based on, um, um, well, whatever. Um, I can't think of the word I'm looking for. So I'll usually say I breathe in life and I breathe out love and I'm thinking of a particular person as I do that. So it can be very focused and very, very, um, very enjoyable to do that. And my question is, what am I missing by um, focusing more of my, my practice on concentration practice now, as opposed to other practices that might have different benefits? Well, I think you have to think of these different practices as uh, resources that you can draw on as needed once you understand how they work uh, and understand. And once you have practiced, practiced with them enough, deeply enough, you begin to see, oh, this is where I really need to practice with loving kindness or I really need to practice with um, concentration. I find myself distracted and um, all over the place. And then there's a time when you want to practice by just letting go of everything and just being. And that, um, uh, basic shikantaza practice, you let go of all of your roles, all of your responsibility, all of the tasks you set for yourself, all of your sense of what you need to be or do in the world. Um, and you just be. And so um, I think under different conditions, you're adopting practices that are going to serve those conditions and serve you in those conditions. So obviously, if you have a lot of trauma just sitting in open spaciousness can re-traumatize you. So their concentration practices can be helpful because there's something to hang on to. Um, something like the steps of the Anapanasati Sutta, for example, or something like that. Or meta practices can be very valuable because you're opening your heart. Um, so, uh, but to do those practices, to do meta practices because you wanna be a kinder person is a form of egoic striving. So that, uh, that everything depends on how you're using the practice. What's your intention with the practice? If you're using concentration practice, practices to distract you from something painful that's arising in you, then it's a, it's a kind of spiritual bypassing. Uh, and you're just using it like a narcotic. So the question is, what's your intention? What, what purpose is being served by this meditation? So many, you know, Joko would not she wouldn't advise people to use metta practices because they were constantly using them to get a better self, a kinder self, a you know, more loving self. Um, and because of that, they set up an ideal, which they were of course not meeting. And so they're not in present moment experience. They're trying to imagine some future better self. It's still going. It's still self-oriented. That makes sense? Yes, Peg. And so, my, I feel so limited um, under the circumstances and the good that I can do in the world. And, and so that is one way you I must feel. must never like, think of it in that way. 
Okay. You must never think of it in that way. We have no idea what ripples out from our intentions. No, no idea where it all goes. Um, I remember Joko saying, you know, Gandhi could move millions with his speeches. I can't do that. I work best one-on-one. -on -one. But one of my students is on the Security Council of the UN. You don't really actually know where those uh, intentions and aspirations get realized. So it's not limited. It's only limited by our belief that it, there should be other. Hold on a second. Someone has my yes. story. But it's also <laughs> the power of one vote. Do you know that's the story about the little girl who's throwing the starfish back into the ocean and some guy yes. comes up to her? So it's, it's that thing that, that um, you know, the starfish one by one are getting saved. Well, and what I was about to say is because I feel so limited in the way that I can positively put things in the world, I use that concentration practice as a means to do that. I feel like at least I'm doing something, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do something because I can't go out and volunteer with Pets Alive or any number of organizations that are out there um well you could but you but but you find the risks unacceptable unacceptable for that yes, so that's true yeah yeah so that it's um everybody is making choices based on whatever wisdom they've acquired in their life and whatever knowledge they have um, and they're assessing what are the what are the dangers what are the benefits um how do i feel about this and every day we're making all those kind of choices should i eat this should i eat that you know um, should I take vitamins? Shouldn't I take vitamins? There's just um, more, I think, more awareness of the kinds of choices that we make and how they have implications. So when we make choices, we're making choices about what we're putting into our life and how we're expressing the life that's in us. And we can't trivialize that. It's we're offering what we offer. And it may be just the turning for one person from, you know, some, uh, some bad unwholesome activity to some wholesome activity. Who knows? It may be building highways. Right. With, with no, uh, no um, intention to make the world a better place, but just to make highways so that you can bring them food to your family. Right. So we look at what, you know, uh, right view and right effort and right livelihood and right intention. All of these are the foundations for making wise choices. And choices that will bring ourselves and others happiness and harmony. So they're very practical. Okay, who's reading? Me. Okay. The Four Noble Truths stand at the beginning and the end of the Eightfold Path. At the beginning, they provide the orientation for right view. At the end, the truths are affirmed by the insights right concentration makes possible. With greater wisdom into the Four Noble Truths, I'm watching this person. Um, a person can then continue to walk the Eightfold Path with greater confidence and wisdom. 
Donna, you want to start on the week one? Okay, do you want me to read all of week one? Yeah. Okay. Reflections and practices, right concentration. Week one, the conditions for concentration in daily life. Recall a time in your life when you were especially concentrated in an enjoyable way. Was this episode associated with a period in your life, a particular activity, or a particular event? What external conditions fostered this concentration? What internal conditions within you supported this concentration? Which of the external and internal conditions did you have some choice over? Do you have some of this choice now? Is there a simple way that you could now recreate some of those or these conditions? During this week, put into place some of the conditions that support a more concentrated, calm, and alert mind. For example, you could focus on getting more sleep, exercise, free time, or relaxation. You could do more activities you enjoy or that nourish or renew you. Perhaps it helps to spend less time online or watching TV. After doing this for a week, evaluate the benefits of this exercise versus the effort it took to put these conditions in place. Were your efforts worth it? Uh, I'm sorry, my apologies. Week two, the experience of concentration. Again this week, recall times when you've been when you've been concentrated, either recently or long ago. Wait. I'm sorry, can you advance the page? I'm not, For me? I'm, not, I'm seeing an old page, I believe. I should be on week two, the experience of concentration. Yeah. Yes. Again this week, recall times. Okay. I got it. I got it. Okay. Week two, the experience of concentration. Again this week, recall times when you have been concentrated, either recently or long ago. What did it feel like to be concentrated? What did it feel like to be focused, centered, or absorbed? What physical body sensations and feelings came with the concentration? What was your mind state at that time? Was calm or equanimity part of the experience? Were there any experience of pleasure or enjoyment? What was your energy or vitality level like? Right after a period of concentration, how do you feel? Focus on developing concentration in your meditation practice this week. Make an effort to keep the mind on one object during the meditation period. If you're using the breath, you might count the breaths from one to 10. If you lose count, simply start over at one. As part of this emphasis on concentration, Paige, try to Create. create conditions that support concentration. For example, do something relaxing or vitalizing just before you sit down to meditate. Consciously put aside concerns and preoccupations. As part of the concentration practice, use any feelings, even preliminary feelings of calm, stability, pleasure, enjoyment, or mental stillness as a kind of biofeedback to support further concentration. I, I, I really like how he, at the end of this section, he, he talked about how the Four Noble Truths um, also come after the Yeah. That's, that's really major for me. Yes. 
Uh, and then the other thing I'm thinking about is um, both like the calligrapher sometimes would stare at his paper for a long time before making a mark. And then also yeah. there was something in the Talmud where where it was suggested that you should sit for an hour before saying a prayer. So the sitting would be more the mindfulness and then the prayer would be the concentration. But that you yeah. couldn't get there until you had uh, uh, maybe rid, rid yourself of all the stuff that all the confusion. Right, let all that settle out. Yeah. And I think that's what we experienced in intensives too, um, after a few days. Yes. Where we go from the mindfulness to the concentration, maybe. Okay, week three. Nancy. I think your turn, right? Yeah. Are you next, Nancy? No, I think it's your turn. Uh, Glenn just mm, read, right? No. I think it's you, Kim. Oh, okay. I'm wrong. Week three, concentration and the hindrances. Becoming skilled in concentration includes developing wisdom about the hindrances to concentration. <coughs> the five hindrances of desire, ill will, sloth, and talper restlessness and regret and doubt are often listed as the primary obstacles to the peaceful concentration emphasized in the Eightfold Path. Spend some time considering which of the five hindrances is most common for you. Spend time this week reflecting on how you can reduce the power and frequency of these hindrances in your meditation and in your life. Consider ways you can let go of your most common hindrances. Talk with a friend about your experiences of the hindrances. Continue last week's practice of focusing on concentration during meditation. <coughs> Notice which hindrances tend to be most common for you in this week's meditation. Stay alert so that you can let go of the thoughts connected to the hindrances as soon as they occur. Just before sitting down to meditate, spend some minutes considering how you can set aside or overcome excuse me, the hindrances. If you are unafraid with the five hindrances, you can read in my articles on hindrances, which you can find on the articles page of the IMC website, insightmeditationcenter.org. There is one article for each of the hindrances. For more information, you can also read Unhindered, my book on the hindrances. <laughs> okay. Week four, concentration and wisdom. The primary purpose of concentration is to facilitate deep insight and understanding. Spend some time reflecting on how being concentrated can have deepen understanding in general. Have you understood things better when you were concentrated and calm? How did the concentrated state contribute to your, to your understanding? What can you learn from being concentrated that helps you become even more concentrated? Over the course of this week, focus your meditation practice on cultivating concentration. 
when you have become as concentrated as you think you will be during the meditation session, ask yourself what perspective on desire, aversion, clinging, thinking, and freedom you have from your current state of concentration. What does being concentrated teach you about the choices you can make in each present moment that lead to being caught or that lead to being free? So anything that we want to say before we go to this next chapter? It seems pretty clear to me, right? I think so. And also somewhat different than what I thought. Yeah. I'm glad we had this uh, together with mindfulness, you know, sort of gives you a little bit of a sense of what those distinctions are. And I think soft for me is, is a word certainly I'm going to take away from the uh -huh. Soft. Yeah. Soft, soft, flexible mind is what uh, Suzuki called it at one point. Okay. I think we've been giving it a bad name, a concentration in Zen. Well, yeah, I think we just have a, uh, a lot of associations with that word that have to do with striving and focus. Um, Almost like a Victorian. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thing. Mm -hmm. Or like a Puritan thing, Calvinist thing. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think. Nelda. Nelda. Did we lose Nelda? No, she's here, but she's muted, which makes it hard to hear her. Ah, I'm so sorry. I, all right. <laughs> I have yelpy doggies in the background, so I mute as often as I can. So, um, so chapter 12, page 90, from the Eightfold Path to the Tenfold Path. For one who is concentrated, there's no need to intend. May I know and see things as they really are. It is a natural law for one with a concentrated mind to know and see things as they really are. Oh, I love that. The Buddha, Numerical Discourses 10.2. The primary purpose of the Eightfold Path is to bring an end to greed, hate, and delusion and the suffering that inevitably accompany them. In describing the fulfillment of this purpose, the Buddha occasionally mentioned a tenfold path. It is this expanded list, right knowledge and right release. I'm sorry, in this expanded list, right knowledge and right release are added after the more familiar list of eight factors. The eightfold path creates the conditions for the ending of clinging and suffering. Right knowledge is the insight that triggers right release i.e. the cessation of suffering. Right knowledge is neither an abstract truth nor something we learn from a teaching. It isn't something mysterious or supernatural. As a continuation of the Eightfold Path, right knowledge is knowing firsthand the benefits experienced through living the path and the suffering experienced when we don't live the path. The benefits include greater peace, 
compassion, well-being, integrity, and spiritual freedom. And the suffering includes all the familiar states we humans know so well, agitation, fear, conceit, greed, hostility, and more. The more fully we experience the benefits, the more clearly we see the difference between being attached and being free, having ill will and having goodwill, having ethical integrity and not having integrity. As we begin to make different choices, contracted and agitated states of clinging begin to lose their appeal and their power over us. And we learn that they are neither hardwired nor necessary. As we see and experience healthy alternatives, these painful states begin to diminish in strength and frequency. Right knowledge is the understanding we gain from directly experiencing the absence of suffering. The more practicing the Eightfold Path alleviates suffering, the better we understand that clinging causes suffering and experiencing the expansive, peaceful, and happy states that come with the absence of clinging makes us increasingly sensitive to the reappearance of clinging, even in its most subtle forms. It becomes more and more clear that contracting, attacking, resisting, and other expressions of greed, hate, and delusion are painful and cause harm. Right knowledge also includes recognizing that letting go of these contracted states and behaviors is reliable and trustworthy. It is not something we need to fear, even if what we are letting go of is our most precious and tenacious attachments to self. Freedom from clinging doesn't diminish us. Rather, it leads to some of the healthiest and most beneficial states of mind humans can experience. Through the mindfulness and concentration factors of the Eightfold Path, right knowledge sees how all our perceptions and conceptions are in flux constantly, constantly changing. With their fleeting appearance and disappearance, they are not stable and thus cannot provide the fullest experience of peace. They cannot serve as the basis for a liberated mind. Therefore, the basis for liberation is release. Right knowledge sets the stage for right release by helping the mind to relax and appreciate the process of letting go. Knowing the tangible suffering of clinging <coughs> brings a disinclination to cling. Knowing the peace and well-being of non-clinging teaches the letting go of clinging. Uh, knowing the peace and well-being of non-clinging teaches that letting go of clinging is letting go into peace. Right release differs from ordinary letting go in that it has a bigger and more lasting impact. It is a ceasing of clinging so clear that right knowledge then becomes a knowing that is always available to us. In much the same way that we're no longer fooled by a magic trick once we've been show, shown how, <coughs> how the trick is performed, a person who has experienced a mind released will begin to see through the tricks of the mind. Len, you want to chime in? Oh, what? we missed you, Glenn. I know, that's all right. 
Why'd you For most people, right release is followed by a gradual process of becoming free in age. Hello? Are we, there we go. And more and more areas of their life. The Buddha described these areas in terms of beliefs, biological drives, and subtle mental, mental tendencies. Because ultimate freedom does not, in itself, require any beliefs. Buddhism is particularly sensitive to the problems of clinging to beliefs, interpretations, and stories. An important part of living the Eightfold Path is loosening the grip on our views, including views about ourselves. Significant experience of release shows us that we don't need to be defined by any self-concept or identity. More tenacious than clinging to beliefs is the clinging stemming from the drives of sen sensual desire and hostility. Even when people know that such clinging causes suffering, it can be difficult to let go. Even the wisest person, people that can easily succumb to these. This is where practicing the Eightfold Path is important. It provides a satisfying sense of well-being that is an effective alternative to desire or anger. Our strong drives can relax and fade away when something better is being experienced. Often enough, it is not helpful to be instructed to let go of desire and aversions. More useful is relaxing deeply, settling into a unified sense of being and enjoying the pleasant feelings that can come with non-clinging. Sensual desire and host, host, hostility can then simply fade away. The most difficult areas of clinging to overcome are subtle forms of conceit, irritation and ignorance. A person who is trying to let go of these can be caught in the conceit of individuality and personal agency. Sometimes the effort to let go agitates the mind. Believing there is something to let go of supports ignorance. The way to final release is to settle deeply into a relaxed, alert state where one doesn't try to do anything. Some people refer to this as a state of equanimity. Others refer to it as rest it is with this kind of ease that the mind can let go of itself. Mm. Mm, this is cool, right? <laughs> wow. The Eightfold Path is called the Noble Path because of the integrity and dignity it bestows. As it is not dependent on beliefs, those who walk this path do not champion Buddhism in opposition to the beliefs of others. In overcoming clinging, People on the path do not create conflict. Instead, practicing the Eightfold Path develops an open mind, an open heart, and an open hand. May this openness be a benefit to the whole world. Then Anatta said to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, this is half of the holy life, that is, good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. The Buddha answered, no, no, Ananda, no, no, Ananda. This is the entire holy life, Ananda, that is good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. When practitioners have a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, it is to be expected that they will develop and cultivate the noble eightfold path.
What a what a useful book. What a helpful yes. book. Isn't it? Yeah. Yes. yes it is. I'm glad you Should we, we have... read the oh sorry. Yeah. Oh um yeah, I want to ask, should we read the hindrance article? Should we what? Should we read the uh hindrance article that he suggested? Uh, I think we're going to be going on to the um, koan book, returning to the koan book. He just went today. Yeah, just today, oh. the article. I think, I don't well, know if it, it is long. It's five, five different articles. Oh, different. Oh, okay. There are each, one on each of the hindrances. Oh, I see. Okay. Yes, yeah, so it might be too much for this evening. Yeah. But we have a little time to talk about, you know, what we think about this book. And um, it's, of course, in a slightly different school of Buddhism than we... Uh, than we have in Zen, but there's not as big a difference between these schools as some people seem to make out. Um, they're all grounded in the teachings of the Buddha, and they're just different reflections. It's almost like facets of a jewel, you know, there are different reflections of that, uh, those teachings. So I, I really admired his uh, little section on the practices for each of these. And what to do, you know, that's why he recommends, uh, you know, like a study group where you would meet once a month and then each week you would do the practices and then you would talk about a little bit about how those practices unfolded. So that seems like it'd be a, a, a lovely thing to do too. To engage in that. Sort of is similar to the way that we did with the precepts. The precepts, yes. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's nice to think of this as steps on a path. How each one depends on the, all of the previous ones as we go along. I knew so a little this, bit about these, these last two, but not quite so much about them. Yeah. This You're has saying? been so useful on, and helpful as you all have too. On first reading, that much like the precepts, I'm going to go back and reread yes. uh, it, and it'll get richer, I know, with the second reading and with a more focused practice. And then, yes. and, and it's shorter, so, <laughs> so I'll get to repeat it more times in a year than, than just once, like with the precepts class. But what a great adjunct to the precepts and he lays those steps out in a way that I can comprehend so easy so focused little baby steps that's sort of my style um, right now yeah he's a very clear teacher I really appreciate his teaching um, and you know I've done um, a retreat with him and I really liked I just liked his whole approach he's very he's not egoic at all um, and uh, just it's just beautifully done what what he's doing there is there some Zen flavor to what he does since, you know, he, he was a Zen practitioner as well? Yeah. And I asked him about that. And he said, I said, you know, why did you switch over to teaching in the Vipassana tradition from the Zen tradition? And he said, I never switched over. He said, I, I've always been on parallel tracks. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and I was curious about that. I, and I, I didn't, 
really press him on it. But the thing I would ask is, well, how do you square this with a vow, which isn't really a part of the Theravadan tradition? Um, how does that work? And I think for him, he's living that vow. And so he's put his life in service to others in this way. Um, and he still teaches um, in Zen centers. So he teaches at San Francisco Zen Center. They adore him there. So he's a person who doesn't seem bound by those distinctions. And that was very refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Deeply, deeply kind person. So it was just uh, lovely to be there. And I'm, I'm very worried about them with the fires. Yeah, so he's in Redwood City, which is near San Francisco. And I don't know, uh, I haven't heard anything about how they're doing. But he was just starting a teacher training program that looked really interesting to me. I thought this is something that we could recommend to people. It's really a good, probably a good program. Spirit Rock is a good program. Yeah. So, so I like his work quite a bit. And the website is full of his teachings. I mean, there's a, a he has a very good pod, podcast. I really enjoy his podcast. And it's actually better to listen to it on their own app, Audio Dharma app, because um, it's or, you can you can listen by speaker or you can listen by um, series. You know, as he says, has teaching series, and he sometimes will share those teaching series with other teachers. It's very interesting to hear them. So, yeah. So I loved um, when I was there. I'm not remembering the teacher's name, but she was from Mexico, and she was talking about bullfighting. You know, and um, and how she said. She used to listen as a grandchild with her grandfather to watch the bullfights on TV. And uh, she said, I know, I know about the bullfights, you know, and it's cruel and inhuman and all that. But she said, but this was our way of bonding. And she said, um, that moment when the matador, uh, the bull is charging the cape and the matador just steps aside and there's this movement and the whole crowd goes, ole. She said, every time I avoid a hindrance, that's what I do in my mind. Ole! <laughs> That's lovely. The crowd goes wild, you know. <laughs> it was such a vivid image. It was so lovely, you know. It's just, it's just the red cape just sweeps over the back of the bull's um, back, you know. <laughs> and they pass within inches of the matador. And she said, it's just like that. Ole! <laughs> I didn't give in to that hindrance or I didn't give in to that, you know, uh, unwholesome thought or activity. So I, I think that's such a f great way to think about it. Just lovely. Yeah, I'll remember that one. Practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like, uh, you know, um, charged at and missed. Yeah. Gives you a sense of aliveness. Yeah. It was quite wonderful. <laughs> So, I, yeah, I, th I think this is a very practical guide. You could hand to anybody, really, you know, even a person very new to Buddhism, um, and it would be quite beneficial. And this is short enough and accessible enough uh, that anybody could benefit from it. But his teaching is profound. So I like the way he's made it so accessible. I guess you could take a release as being also release of the cycle of birth and death. Yeah. It's released from all that whole mass of suffering. 
the whole 12-fold chain, for example. It's a freedom. Um, so it's released like kids on the last day of school. That kind of release. Yeah, in the, in the Terragatha verses we read, um, you know, and many of the, by the time at the bottom, that's where they go. Yeah. At release. I think some, I think when we use the term letting go, as he points out, um, it gives us an inner sense of loss. You know, something we were attached to that we have to let go of gives us a sense of loss, even if it's something we don't want, you know, a bad habit, for example. Um, but the sense of release gives a sense of freedom. And I think I like that much, much better than letting go. Yeah, it's just being released. Energetically, it's a different thing. Then you must let go of your, you know, sensual desires, or you must like, you know, like it just feels like a loss. But that concept of release, so like I'm just imagining kids that last day of school when they fling themselves out the door, you know, and they're wild and crazy and full of joy. Um, I think of it like that. Is that different, right? It is different. It's a relaxation. It's a release. You relax yeah. into it. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't have that sort of Puritan sense of this will be good for you. Let go of this because it'll be good for you. <laughs> let go of your pleasures. Let go of everything you desire and crave because it'll be good for you. So there's that sort of morality and that usual way of thinking about it. But release. That's, that's freedom. And if we can be free from the things that are limiting us, all the better. Yeah. So it's great. I've been, I've been really glad that we, you know, I had read it and I was really happy to go through it again with you guys. It was really the last part of it that I got to do anyway. Yeah, really enjoyable. And then we returned to koans. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy that we'll be back with Guogu. And Guogu has a new book. It should be coming out very soon, if I remember correctly. Um, and it's about Chan. So um, let's see if I can tell you when the release date is. Uh, the Essence of Chan, uh, October 27th. A Guide to Life and Practice According to the Teachings of Bodhidharma. So I think that's going to be really good. I pre-ordered it. Um, and it'll be on the Kindle also, so pretty reasonable. So October 27th, that feels like a long way away, but we know how we're in COVID time, so everything, all, all our time sense is distorted. Yeah. It's still March in some ways, right? <laughs> when everything got put on hold. Yeah, and we keep having a fantasy that we're somehow going to go back to that point and restore everything. It's, and, uh, mm -hmm. it's not going to happen that way. No. We have a very long six months ahead of us, I'm afraid. Yeah. I think it's going to be a year. Um, oh, easily. Yeah, I think it's going to be a year. Um, I think six months we'll see a probably fairly, you know, promising vaccine uh, that's well tested. But I don't think we're going to be out of the woods because we have to produce it and we've got to get it distributed and we've got to get it into people. So, and at that, we don't really know um, uh, 
really how long it conveys any immunity. We don't know, so many things we don't know about it. So everything is complex as usual, but it's, we're more aware of it now. I mean, from the virus's point of view, it's supremely successful. Yes. Yes. You know, it's, it's got some strategies that, that make it extremely, extremely successful. First of all, it doesn't kill all of its hosts. Second of all, there's asymptomatic transmission, you know, mm -hmm. so, so people can't defend against it so easily. Um, its way of multiplying in the body is unique. It's extremely successful in its evolution. Well, is the retraction um, that happened today by the CDC um, choreographed by Trump? Yeah, it's a result of political pressure. So they've lost all their credibility. Yeah. Which is, which is what he desires, you know, for them to lose all their credibility, so. The, those, those for whom Trump is a useful idiot desire that. Yes, he so he's a useful idiot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he doesn't really have the intelligence to engineer this kind of dismantling himself. Yeah. They must all be shaking their heads. Someone there at CDC, they know better. Well, a lot of them have bailed, you know, because they, their reputations as scientists are at stake. And so there isn't anything this administration can do to preserve their reputation. So they can't benefit from this administration at all. Their reputations are being destroyed. So in the scientific community, that's worth more than any amount of money, any amount of money. Well, it even translates to money in terms of grants that they can get in the future. Well, that's dependent on many factors. Political wins affect that too. Yeah. So yeah. the most ethical and credible are gone. Well, they're either gone. I mean, the people who had fantasies that they could stay in place and make changes for the better in the midst of all this uh, administration have learned the sorry that's lesson that that's not going to happen. Not going to happen. So it's their choice if they stay, they're staying because they can't afford to cut and run. You know, they don't have another option. They don't have any place else they can go or anything else they can do. So the ones who can do something else or who are close to retirement age, they can go. But so I imagine for many of them, it's with a really heavy heart because this was a, you know, uh, an important position where you really made an impact. So where does one turn for information these days? When I saw them retract that statement, I thought even the CDC I can't rely on these days. So to whom? Uh, larger stories, ProPublica is really good. Uh, the Washington Post is, um, in my view, better than the New York Times in reporting on these things. Um, the New York Times will sometimes serve as a kind of apologist and they use euphemisms for things that should be called out. So, um, so to say um, the president misspoke instead of the president lied is a, um, a kind of 
um, softening the reality of what's there. So, so I, I have a little preference for the, uh, for the Washington Post. ProPublica does in-depth journalism. Um, and then I really like the correspondent, which is in the Netherlands. And um, they don't report the news like the newspapers report the news. They report deep stories. So like, is America still a democracy, which they don't think it is. And it hasn't been for a while. So it's very, it's, it's very well, um, I mean, it's that European sensibility. And I think the correspondent is very highly regarded. It's, this is its first year, but it's very highly regarded by Europeans. Um, and that book um, Rutger Bregman wrote, um, Humankind, uh, he's a writer for The Correspondent. And he also wrote Utopia for Realists, which is a wonderful book. Both those books are wonderful. So those are, those are some reliable sources, I think. Um, if you want to check something out that you think might be a rumor, um, go to Snopes, uh, snopes.com. That's a good place to get rumors dismantled. Yeah. Okay. Can we um, terminate tonight? I think so. Oh, I think so. Anything Everyone's else anyone needs to say? Was this a useful detour? Oh, yes. 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 Okay. That's great. I'm really, really glad. I'm glad we did it. Yes. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And Thank you, everyone. We'll be back with GoGo. So drag your books out, <laughs> line up where we were. Okay, bye-bye everybody. Bye. 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 Take care. Bye.